This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to the Film Podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss J.R.R. Tolkien's 1954 novel, The Two Towers. Welcome back to Middle Earth. Uh, unfortunately, Boromir's corpse is at our feet. <laughs> Otherwise, this would just be a really happy return to Middle Earth. <laughs> well, it's funny, like, even though it was, we started with this kind of shocking, violent moment and sad at that. It's going back to Middle Earth is is this very, it is still a warm feeling to me. And it is, it's just, it's familiar. And yeah. it's, it, no matter what's going on in the world, I'm always happy to go back to Middle Earth. So I think this is the book where I kind of, uh dnf'd you know i kind of i kind of didn't finish this book i think when i went to read it a few years ago uh for the first time and like i said i've you know i i detailed our history we detailed our history with lord of the rings in, in our previous episodes on fellowship but yeah i think i think i fell off in this book somewhere towards the middle and didn't finish it and then i've never read return of the king so i'm definitely eager to get to that um but i was i was thinking about why as i was reading this and i really believe it's because this part of the book we get no hobbits. Well, um, that's not true. We get no Frodo, <laughs> I should say. We get Merry and Pippin, obviously. Frodo's gone. And, like, Frodo's our main protagonist who we've followed throughout all of Fellowship. And to have him just be gone for this opening part of this book is weird. It feels it feels weird to me. And so when you're talking about that homey, warm feeling, I think part of that's tied up with these hobbits for me. And mm. uh, so I get a little bit of it in the Merry Pippin chapters, but, but when we're just with Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas... Uh, it just feels like a very different book. I think that's what it is. I think it just the second book switches gears into a different kind of story. I think the first one was the leaving of that warm that warm territory into this more unknown area, and now we're in like this. It reads like a war novel as well. Like you like battle plans and and alliances and and people's you know allegiances and where they lie. Uh, I, the beginning of this book is very much that. I think that the best way to consume this material is just as soon as you finish fellowship start reading two towers the gap that we've taken has really i think changed kind of how our outlook on this scene would would have been right after mm-hmm. um since we last covered fellowship of the ring i've had to try so hard to not encounter two towers in any way i was actually at a brewery recently and they were playing two towers and i had to like avert my eyes the entire time because i was like <laughs> i knew we were going to cover it for the podcast yeah, I've also been avoiding it. I think it's come on a couple times on TV and stuff, and I've just had to walk to the other room. But hey, we're here now. It's been, it's actually been almost a year, like to the week, I think. It's like a, bit, a couple weeks, I think, difference, but it's been almost exactly a year since we covered Fellowship. And uh, if anybody wants to go back and check those out, in case you're just finding this, it's episodes 36 through 39. We did three on the book, and then we covered the movie. Um, so this is a continuation of that of that coverage, I guess, in, in that way. And this is, uh, other than, I guess, Harry Potter, where we returned, this is like one of our few times where we've returned to the same material like this. Yeah, I think so. It's like the same series, I guess I'm saying. Right, so far. <laughs> so far, but we'll probably be doing more of this in the future. 
so yeah, I guess, uh, do you want to start off with like general thoughts or, or get into some summary? I do have some interesting notes from the Wikipedia about the tower, about the, uh, the title, the two towers. Okay. Uh, let's hear that first. Okay. So, uh, according to Wikipedia, Tolkien wrote the two towers gets as near as possible to finding a title to cover the widely divergent books three and four and can be left ambiguous. I guess meaning like what the two towers refer to. At this stage, he planned to title the individual books. The proposed title for book three was The Treason of Isengard. Book four was titled The Journey of the Ringbearers or The Ring Goes East. The titles The Treason of Isengard and The Ring Goes East were used in the Millennium Edition of the books. Uh, So I guess he's talking, you know how like it says like book three, book four as you're getting into this book and it's actually two Mm -hmm. two separate books. Um, that's, That's what that's referring to. So in letters to Rainer Unwin, Tolkien considered naming the two towers as Orthanc and Baradur, Minas Tirith and Baradur, or Orthanc and the Tower of Sirith Ungol. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing these wrong. I'm actually really bad at pronouncing Lord of the Rings names. <laughs> <laughs> um, however, a month later, he wrote a note published at the end of Fellowship of the Ring and later drew a cover illustration, both of which identified the pair as Minas Morgul and Orthanc. In the illustration, Orthanc is shown as a black tower, three-horned, with the sign of the white hand beside it. Minas Morgul is a white tower with a thin waning moon above it, in reference to its original name, Minas Ithil, the Tower of the Rising Moon. Between the two towers, a Nazgul flies. So, there you go. Wow. Those are the two towers, I, I guess. I love that stuff. But I think it's also kind of ambiguous what, what, what could be the two towers, right? Yeah, I think it's really cool to know that... I'm assuming that the books came out, you know, book one, and then you, so you got like half of fellowship and then you had to wait for the second half of fellowship. And then book, book three would have been the first part of, of two towers. And I can't even imagine experiencing the stories in that way. Like not knowing what comes halfway through fellowship, not know, not knowing what comes next. Was it ever released that way? I don't think so. I think it was released the way we read it now as in three volumes. Um, I think it was planned to be released in different ways. Um, I've read some conflicting things about maybe it was released to planned to be released as a single volume or in two volumes. So this is what I found. The work was initially intended by Tolkien to be one volume of a two volume set, the other to be the Silmarillion. But this idea was dismissed by his publisher. For economic reasons, The Lord of the Rings was published in three volumes over the course of a year, from the 29th of July, 1954, to the 20th of October, 1955. The three volumes were titled, as we know them, Structurally, the novel is divided internally into six books, two per volume, with several appendices of background material included at the end. Some editions combine the entire work into a single volume. So yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of complicated, but basically it is what it is now. So it was never, yeah, so it was never published in any sort of split way like that, like I was talking about. But yeah. that would be a weird way to experience it, regardless. It would be weird, yeah. So starting the story here, I know we're going to get to the plot here in a second, but just in general a general sense, I don't think that I was emotionally ready to jump right back into Boromir. Mm. Like, I had, you know, I my memory of the story usually goes along with the movie, so jumping right into the beginning of the second book and having that scene go down the way it does. I was like, whoa. And it took me a second, but eventually I clicked in. And I think it's an effective way to get people interested. But I also think that I prefer the end of Fellowship. I agree. I I think uh, Peter Jackson rightfully identified this as a moment of high drama and it deserved to be the final thing in Fellowship. And it does feel weird having it start off two towers. Um, it, It, it seems to me like Tolkien 
resisted making it overly sad. Um, but probably because he knew that starting a book that way is going to be kind of weird. Um, whereas mm-hmm. like you're, you're free to do that if it's the climax of the novel. And so even though there is definitely some poignant moments, there's definitely some poignant details. We don't get the, like, I would have followed you, my, my King, you know, like the, the, uh, the awesome lines that, 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 that we get in the movies. It's, I think it's there. Like the, I think what it's they're implied. saying to each other in the movie, exactly. It's implied. I think that you can infer that that's the way that, that, that Aragorn feels in the situation. Yeah. But he, Boromir doesn't say it. And I think uh, right. the impact of actually hearing those lines is, is really powerful. And, and I, we got to give credit. Cause I feel like something about like the legacy of the Lord of the Rings because of the Hobbit movies Sometimes I worry that the legacy of the original films has kind of been tarnished by that. I hope not, man. Much like how the sequels and, of the of the Matrix kind of inform the original. Um, and so I just want to definitely give Peter Jackson and his crew and his writers um, and whoever else consulted credit for when I feel like they did really nail something in this adaptation. And I think I think they yeah. really nailed the the Boromir scene and put it in the right spot in the story. The idea that a sequel could ruin or or a prequel in the Hobbit's case could ruin any sort of um, I just have never really subscribed to that. Like it doesn't the Matrix is still amazing on its own, regardless of the sequels. I agree with you. I think that it's like like if anyone thinks poorly of the Lord of the Rings, they just all you need to do is revisit those three movies and you'll be blown away again. Right. There's also another just kind of story thing here that I feel like we have to talk about right off the bat is that uh, this whole part of the Two Towers is about, uh, we already mentioned it earlier, but it's about you know the, the three hunters, and then it's about uh, Merry and Pippin. And that's it. We get no Frodo, no Sam, and no mm-hmm. Gollum. And that is hard to do, like to just take your main character and push him aside for an ent- like half of the entire book. Um, mm-hmm. I know a lot of people struggled with this, in um what is it book four of a song of ice and fire when martin did something similar um it's tough to do where all of a sudden like the characters that you thought you were going to get when you picked up the novel aren't there now we do get them in the latter half at least but i think i think uh peter jackson was smart to integrate those two stories and not try and do this whole like we're going to show you everything that happens here and then show you everything that happens there yeah it's definitely very different yeah having frodo their their journeys kind of mirror each other I mean, with what's with what's looming for next week, I think I'll leave it at that for now. Just knowing like that he's setting up this whole war and these battles that are going to happen while, you know, the innocence of the hobbits are, are fa- fairly far away, or at least Sam and, and Frodo. Yeah. Are far so, from our minds. So speaking of the two books, we, we talked, we had a discussion about this and it would have probably made more sense to cover book three as an episode, book four as an episode. But uh, we deci- we both decided we wanted to spend a little more time in the world and give it three full Ink to Film episodes. So because of that, we just kind of divided it by page number. And we said, this is one third of the book. This is one third of the one third of the book. So this episode is going to cover chapters one through six, um, which ended up leading up right to the beginning of the Helm's Deep confrontation. So I think it ended up being a decent place to stop. Um, a lot of this stuff feels kind of like it's building towards something. So I guess it makes it a good opening episode in that regard, too. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like setting the scene for like the real business of of two towers to get to go down. That's exactly how I felt this week reading and where we stopped. I was like, "Ooh, this is a good little teaser. Get back into the groove of things. And yeah, I- I'm excited. I can't wait to to continue on. But I think there is a lot to talk about in here. Um, 
I, I think another reason why it's so I'm always I'm always excited to jump into Tolkien because it, although these heavier topics are being are going on, just the fact that like all of the characters are singing like 20 pages into the into this book, and like I know they're som- they're singing somber songs, but that it, there's something about characters breaking into song in a in a, like a fantasy story like this that just that like makes me or, feel like, like oral history, oral storytelling. Yeah, something something like there's something magical to being able to write a song like that. I felt like that that sort of writing is is it, I don't think a lot of people could pull it off because it would be so jarring. And it, I think that he pulls it off and, and the, it all makes sense. Like, I don't I buy that the characters would do it. So every one of those songs can almost be viewed as kind of like a poem in and of itself. So it's almost like separate works within a work which is always cool. And and because of that, they also, you get the implication that these songs often at least um, exist within the texture of the world. They're refer- they're like exactly. singing a song they, that has been sung before. Um, now, or sometimes just, it does. Or just like, freestyling them. Just, it, yeah. They're just kind of like improvising their, their, their songs or, or freestyling as you said. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hey man, the, 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 there's some mad, mad rap game in, in middle earth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like I get like some people hate this stuff, you know, like some people go to read the book and they're like, why am I going to read five pages of a song? Like, so, mm-hmm. so like I understand, especially modern readers, some people can, can struggle to get into this book. And and like I said before, I fell out of it one, the one time I tried to read it. Now, I was also, I had already seen the movie, so I kind of like knew what was coming. And that's, and mm-hmm. so I kind of ended up bouncing out of it. But I think it was also, I think it was like some of the tree beard stuff. And the um, the pursuit, um, I think for me, it felt a little bit like it was dragging, and I really just wanted something to happen. Um, so, I don't know. I'll be interested to see once I push through that and and like into mm-hmm. next week um, to see if like I feel like it really pays off and and it's worth the the slower pace. Yeah, I guess to just finish off what I was trying to say there, what I the, what I couldn't pull out of my head before was I just think there's something magical about these songs when I read them. It, to me, it shouldn't be enthralling. Like you're saying, like, I feel like it should be kind of jarring and weird. But I, to me, when I'm reading them, like you said, it's like poetry. And it is it is very engaging for me. Uh, to, to ask you a question, though, you said that you stopped before. Do you know if you've ever read Helm's Deep? Have you read the Battle of Helm's Deep? Or did you stop before that? I was trying to remember, honestly. Um, I feel like I haven't, but it's definitely possible that I'll start reading that chapter and then I'll go, oh yeah, I have read this before. Um, but I think right now it feels like I actually got a little bit farther with this read than I had gotten previously. Cool. All right, so spe- so we better get into the uh, into the summary here. We're going to go chapter by chapter. I'm just going to kind of give some bullet points and then we can kind of react as we go um, and we'll, we'll, we'll move through this material. So chapter one is called The Departure of Boromir. Aragorn is looking for Frodo when he hears the horn of Boromir and he sees orcs in the woods. He battles his way to Boromir and he finds that he has been shot with arrows, but around him lays 20 dead orcs. The hobbits have been taken. Boromir bids Aragorn to go to Minas Tirith and basically claim his birthright. Boromir also admits that he tried to take the ring and apologizes for doing it. Yeah, we talked. We talked about this scene earlier. It's still poignant here for me, um, but it just didn't. It just didn't hit me the same way that it did in the movie. Right. I, I, do you think you're bringing some of the stuff, some of the emotion from the movie into the book as well? Because I feel I myself do. doing that. Yeah. 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 But we already talked about the scene, so let's move on. So Gimli and Legolas join Aragorn, and they decide that they're going to send Boromir off in a boat with his with his with his weapon and the weapons of his foes piled at his feet. Um, which I thought which was pretty awesome. cool. Like that was something yeah. that I feel like wasn't in the movie. At least I don't remember it. 
Aragorn is able to deduce from the tracks and from the weaponry and the, the corpses that these uh, orcs and goblins and stuff came from came from different areas. He sees that there are white hands and then there's like a red eye symbol on some of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, he deduces that one is Saruman and one is from, from Mordor, uh, one group. Um, and then so then they send up Boromir off in his in his funeral boat. Um, and I do like there's like a little bit of like legend thrown in there about how like he was seen drifting through the oceans later and stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we get three separate songs as they eulogize Boromir. Um, so I said, yeah, once again, this is a tradition that Tolkien loves, right? He loves these songs. Um, they also then are trying to figure out where the hob- where the hobbits have gone, and they deduce that Frodo fled uh, for some reason, but Aragorn keeps Boromir's secret. He does not tell Legolas and Gimli that Boromir tried to take the ring. Um, and then they find some orc tracks and decide they're going to follow, and it's kind of an epic, like, we're going to have you know an, an awesome chase. And like it's funny because it's like that in the movie, but it's def- it's also like that in the book. Like they they decide they're going to give a hell of a chase and then they just like zip off. There's a moment where it's said that Aragorn like like I don't know, jumps like a deer or something like that into the forest like all down the path and I, I envision Vigo jumping. Like that actually happens at the end of fellowship. And that brings me to the, just the fact that this is the end of, of Fellowship, the film. So yeah. like this is the exact start of Two Towers, if we're trying to line it up to the movie. Later, we do get the writers of Rohan saying, like, you went how far and how many days? And then they're like, holy shit. So, so yeah, it just adds the fact that they're like racing after the, after the Hobbits. But it's funny because they can't actually catch up because the, the orcs are just going even faster. Right. With this being the actual fully broken fellowship at the beginning of, what do you think the difference is for you with the fellowship being broken at the end of Fellowship of the Ring, the film, and then the fellowship being broken at the beginning of Two Towers? There is a sense of loss, I think, here, have, knowing that all of these companions are have broken and gone th- essentially three different directions. Um, four, four of you count over the, over the river, over the, over the waterfall. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's sad. It's like, uh, this, this companions, this fellowship of friends, they're all, they break up here and they're all kind of doing their own thing. And, and it's sad because that's, that goes against what we want in our heart of hearts, right? Like we wanted to see them go all the way with, with Frodo, but, um, I think the story is the better for it eventually. Right. So, um, I think there is sort of an adjustment period though, where, you're no longer reading this this narrative you've come to to you know love and, and and appreciate of the fellowship and it's now gone and i wonder if there's something to be said for that with with tolkien finishing the book where it does is it keep that fellowship pure all the way through the fellowship of the ring and then break it at the beginning of two towers in, in order to kind of show how different this story will be from the last yeah all right chapter 2 is called the writers of rohan so the our three hunters are tracking the orcs and they find the brooch um, that one of the hobbits dropped and we get the line not idly do the leaves of Lorien fall, uh, which is a cool line directly from the movie as well or directly re- reproduced in the movie. Um, they only sleep briefly. They're running all day. Uh, Legolas isn't perhaps sleeping at all because he's an elf. Um, they do eventually start to tire in their pursuit. And it eventually leads them to Fangorn Forest. And when they get to like the edge of Fangorn Forest, they also see this fast-moving blur. Legolas is use, able to use his elven eyesight to determine that it's 105 riders, which he counts. And then um, he can also like describe the exact way that the leader looks. 
Um, and uh, they sort of they sort of hide, but then they're able to like Aragorn just shouts out at them at one point. The writers circle back around, and we meet Aomer. He wants to fight immediately. Uh, Gimli's being all prickly. It almost comes to blows, but Aragorn is able to sort of defuse everything. And uh, they ask for help in pursuing this orc host who they've been chasing. And Aomer reveals that actually they already slew all the orcs. And when they killed them, they didn't see any hobbits there. So the hobbits have disappeared, and it's a complete mystery as to where they have gone. Aragorn next uh, tells Aomer of, of the Gandalf's fall into darkness. Uh, they mentioned that the great horse Shadowfax had returned, so they had suspicions that something maybe had, had befallen Gandalf. Um, they also tell of Boromir, and, you know, it seems like a lot of bad stuff. He says, like, we bring all, all, you only bring woe with you, I think is said, because mm-hmm. it's like all the, all the things that Aragorn has to say are all bad. They talk about Saruman and how he's, how he's, uh, treasonous. We hear about Theoden, and it seems like maybe some weirdness is going on with Theoden. Um, so Amor decides he's going to allow them to go, but they must promise to come before Theoden uh, after they leave the forest because they want to go into the forest and search for the hobbits. Um, and he says, like, this could be my death just allowing you to do this, but I'm going to allow it. Um, and then mm-hmm. they part ways. The three go into Fangorn and are immediately kind of frightened of it because they've heard a lot of tales about Fangorn being dangerous. Um, and Gimli spots this old bent man in a white cloak who then disappears after they see him. And then they all, they think, Oh, that must've been Saruman because they can't find any tracks. And then their horses are gone. And, uh, that's where where we're in chapter two. Um, so yeah, what was your take on, on all of this, I guess? Well, I I wanted to shoot back to the, the men, the Rohan men for Mm -hmm. a second, just because I think that this is our real, our first real look at, at men within middle earth. Right. Is there, is there much men? Well, uh, there was some in Bree, right? Oh, true. Yeah, that's that's true. But in terms of like an organized army and yeah, um, and I think that folding in into this fantastical world, folding in the more grounded human men, it makes everything else seem that much more magical. And that's something that I think we notice with how they, you know, if if Gandalf is talked about or elves in the forest or or Lothlorien or any of those areas they're like oh these are places of legend there are actually people there and and I, I can't believe that these these things are actually true the fact that Aragorn is wielding Anduril is like a big deal for them because they're like oh this is like a sort of legend that's that's actually being seen you know what I mean like all these things seem like they're myths at this point to them yeah which I think is one of the reasons why Aramir is is willing to kind of trust them and let them let them do their do their thing right because it's like these guys mm-hmm. are on some next level shit like right. that we didn't we didn't know about. <laughs> um, not to mention the fact that they're like the fastest men they've ever. Seen. They're like I can't believe how quickly you got you know fifteen miles or whatever it was. Uh, so what about the creepy old what about the creepy old white cloak motherfucker who's sneaking around the outside of the camp? What's that about? Yeah, even this time I reading I had forgotten that this is supposed to be Saruman. I thought that this was Gandalf, and I was like, that's weird for him to be lurking. Me too, man. I I, I was like, oh, okay, this is this is actually Gandalf, and then. Uh, he just didn't come forward because for whatever reason, I don't know, he's being weird. But uh, yeah, I mean, spoiler for the next sections we're going to get, but like Gandalf says that wasn't him later. So then it is Saruman who's just like projecting himself or maybe actually there. Like, how is this working and and why? It would be so weird if he was randomly there. There's no reason for him to be there. Um, And if he was there, why didn't he just like kill 
someone. Why didn't send you know somebody I mean? at them? Who, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't. I will. I'll be interested to see if this comes back at some point later in the book, but I feel like it's not going to. Very. Yeah, because I, I definitely thought like, I was like, oh, there's Gandalf being a creep. Because Gandalf not coming forward, I feel like makes even less sense. Like then, like why wouldn't he come forward? I don't know. Well, I could see Gandalf in his own way of no, his all knowing way of being like, well, I need to take care of whatever's going on with like the Ents, and like I need to know what what Merry and Pippin are up to, and then come back and I'll meet up with them in a little bit. I could see something yeah. like that, but it's weird that Saruman is just lurking in the woods. Seems like it's yeah, kind of maybe it's like a projection, or maybe it's some sort of trick or something. It just and or also just in terms of like a narrative reason, maybe it's it's Tolkien's way of setting up the fact that Gandalf will reveal himself as Gandalf the White, and maybe I don't know, maybe that's something to do with like oh we saw someone in white, so we should be afraid of them. Yeah, like it almost you know it actually almost kind of makes Gandalf feel kind of like he's maybe withholding something. I don't know. It's weird because like at first I felt like they're going to go this route where Gandalf is almost a new person now. And he says like, oh, that's who I used to be called. We're getting ahead of ourselves. But Mm -hmm. uh, this little bit about him like creeping around the edge of camp, I thought was like further adding to the mystique of like, can we really trust Gandalf now? But I don't feel like that's really pursued. (laughs) Like it's he's just Gandalf. (laughs) Like he's he's the white now. So maybe he's like more pure in some ways, but he is just Gandalf. I've always felt certain way about the fact that he's like supposedly a different seemingly a different person but ultimately the same guy in every way other than the fact that he's i mean he's been through thousands of years worth of experiences or whatever but he comes back and he's the same guy and he's like i'm a different person but he's never in any sort of acting in any sense does he seem like a different person other than what he says Hmm. all right so let's get into chapter three which is called the urukai and I gotta say, this I think was my favorite chapter out of the ones we read. Uh, I really enjoyed this stuff. There's there's the the shift in POV that I liked. Yeah. So we go to uh, Pippin, and it's kind of like he's remembering them being kidnapped by the orcs, but it's also happening at the same time. And this is the first time we see this sort of time jump. I think I, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that like we've never really seen like one side of the story play out and then gone back and seen the other side of the story play out. Mm-hmm. And I think this is setting up what we're going to get in the next quote unquote book. When we get Frodo and Sam, we're going to go back and we're going to see what they've been doing since that same sort of time period. Um, so it's actually interesting. Right. Like I actually do this sometimes in my own writing or I've tried to. And uh, so it's interesting to see that Tolkien doing it back in the fifties um, because it feels mm-hmm. like it's kind of unusual thing to do, but he's doing it here. Yeah. And that's always a fun narrative thing, because as the reader or as the viewer, you're trying to understand where it fits. And and as you do, it's almost like getting references of what you just read. You'll you'll hear someone will mention so-and-so's, I heard tell of, I don't know, a battle at Helm's Deep or something. And this also really reminds me once again of uh, Feast for Crows and Dance of Dragons and and Martin's work. It's funny that he ended up accidentally according to him you know like not by design but he ended up writing a book that had similar kind of things because up until that point in the song of ice and fire it had been very like chronological this thing follows this thing uh but then that timeline got totally mixed up for those two books anyway let's get back to mary and pippin <laughs> um basically remember how the orcs came and were uh when they were fighting they weren't trying to kill them but they were firing all their arrows at boromir and Boromir just like came in, slaughtered 20 of them, almost threw them back, but then they ended up overwhelming him and, and taking him down and, and essentially stealing them. Um, we hear that the orcs that have them are arguing constantly. Uh, 
And uh, some of them keep saying, like, we can't kill them because of orders. And we have to follow these orders. And then the different voices are arguing because these are these are from two different groups. And they're arguing over, like, who's master to follow. Is it Saruman or Sauron? They don't say that, but, like, they're each following different masters. So this is sort of a side thing. But the orcs refer to the warriors that are pursuing them as the white skins, which made me feel, like, a little bit like this could be potentially problematic because the implication being that like the orcs are are of color and the <laughs> warriors are the white skins um I, I feel like there are other people who have definitely read into this as being like mm-hmm. you know white versus non-white um i you know i don't know what, what do you want to weigh in on that at all like what do you think about that i don't know that i've ever really seen it that way but i definitely could understand the idea behind otherizing someone and and like like specifically like being something white uh, versus something not it, how does that not bring up the idea of you know race relations or something like that yeah it's one of those things where it's like do i think tolkien sat down intentionally to do to write a story about this now but is it possible that some biases that he might have had bled over into his work absolutely maybe yeah um and, and and especially i mean he was from a very white part of england you know uh and he, it probably just happened. I mean, that's it's it's one of those unfortunate things, especially when you're reading stuff from a long time ago that like you're going to encounter. And um, I don't know, it's not to forgive it, uh, but it's just mm-hmm. to, I guess, to recognize that there was less calling out of this sort of thing around that time. I think it's safe to say. And so mm-hmm. maybe people were just less aware of their own biases. And maybe if it had brought up to him in a way, he could have he could have addressed it or maybe he would have doubled down. I don't know. I don't know the man, but um, it just it's possible that he wrote this completely without thinking about potential personal biases that might be bleeding over into his work. And definitely there's a strong sense of like white being good and white being just and 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 you know everything else being impure. Um, and that seems on itself, or on the surface at least, uh, problematic. Um, but, you know, beneath that, I, I, I do think there's a lot more about, like, light versus darkness, you know, sun versus shadow, like, stuff like that. No, I, I, think, I think that there's something valid to that for sure. And it also doesn't help that, like, the, the orcs and the goblins are sort of, like, brutish, sort of um, tribal almost, and um, unrefined. And, and so, to me, it feels like savage. It feels a little bit like mm-hmm. like how, like you know the empire views the the those that they are colonizing you know what i mean like the it just it feels a little which bit is, like which would have been very much ba- based on like english and british right you know history and right like i'm sure there are there are just reams and reams of fan fiction written from like the point of view of the orcs and like i i think there are lots of books about that because like it, you would think that like they might have their own story to tell and um Speaking of that, I really like some of these conversations we get between like Ugluk and Grishnak and their argue- arguments about what their like role role is here. And that was what that was the stuff that I loved in this chapter as well as like that that or the politics of the orcs. Yeah, because I feel like we get a lot less of that in the in the movie, right? Um, mm-hmm. I didn't think about them being two separate forces at odds with each other. Now we definitely get some of that, but I think it was more strongly laid out here. And like the idea that Sauron could be fearful of Saruman coming into possession of the ring and and that he might oppose him as a as like a separate force um mm-hmm. and that and that that is what he's worried about not about he's he, like uh Gandalf later says like he never dream, dreamt that we would actually try and destroy the ring 
He's more worried about it falling fall, falling into Saruman's hands or something like that um, and being used against him. Somebody powerful, yeah. And I think that's like the history of the ring as well is just like if it falls into a powerful person's hands, then that could be devastation. The fact that it, it finds its way into certain characters' hands, you know, Bilbo. I mean, I think there are other people that the ring would have called to more powerfully if it, if it had the opportunity is what I'm trying to say. Because like, you know, being in the hands of a hobbit doesn't seem like the best way for the, the ring to be wielded. Thinking of like Gladriel in the last book and how she refused it when when come up when she came up against it is is a it's a huge feat and to think like saruman could probably be you know just as powerful as her if not stronger if he got a hold of it is pretty well i think he'd be i think he'd be stronger because he i mean he's one of the most powerful people around i think it's safe to say Mm -hmm. and he he would totally use it like he he would have no qualms about it whereas i think galadriel would like try when she would resist but then eventually it would probably break her he would be he'd be like all about it he'd be like yeah let's do it well he's seeking it yeah he's actively seeking it so obviously Um, he would use it yeah so back in the camp uh all of a sudden they're attacked by the the riders of rohan and they start killing all the orcs grishnok picks up the hobbits and tries to run off with them so grishnok's then killed by one of the one of the riders and the hobbits are able to basically disguise themselves under their cloaks um, and they sneak off into the woods. Yeah, so the riders of Rohan come have have come upon the orcs and and just decimate them. Basically, they're just killing them left and right. Yeah, there is a, a cool part where uh, I think it's Pippin is literally uh, trying to entice Grishnok with by by implying that he has the ring. Yeah, right. I thought this was really cool because it gives Pippin another another moment of like agency or like something that he does that's relevant within yeah. the story. Yeah, I really and, like that. He's like he he imitates Gollum, and he's like Gollum. <laughs> yeah, it says something about his precious. Yeah, because he because he he sort of intuits that like this is what they're actually after. That's why they didn't kill us because they clearly have orders to just bring hobbits to Saruman. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's like the power of the ring, and it, like even the ring isn't in this scene. It's still like the power of it is still present. Um, and then yeah, we see that the 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 hobbits watch as the horsemen basically run down every single orc slaying them to the to every last man and then burns their corpses they're brutal to the orcs man yeah i mean like, i know they're creature they're like spawn you know demon type born but they're also like sentient beings and they don't yeah it's pretty, pretty i don't know brutal. it's brutal like kill every last one of them that's the thing martin talks about when he was talking about his book like like after the end of the lord of the rings do we get like a ex- mass extermination of every single living orc does that happen are we okay with that? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, I think the, that we have to assume that that last battle and like, yeah, any orcs that remaining would be dead. But I think it's, I think th- within this story, it's kill or be killed with the orcs. Like the, if you leave an orc alive, eventually it'll come back around and kill you somehow. Yeah. So within that's the, kind within of the, the story. They're so evil. It's like, you know, it, you know what actually another project that makes me think of? Uh, Jaws. How we talked about mm-hmm. like, there's real life where like a big shark is not a monster out of hell that has to be pursued at all costs and, and slain. Um, it's actually just an animal. Right. And then there's the, the, the like fiction of the world we're in where that is the case for that, for that book. Um, and in this book, orcs are all bad essentially. And right. are, they all need to be killed. There is no new. They love there. killing also like they, they lust for it. They want to kill anything all the time. That's true. All right, man. Chapter four is called Treebeard. Pippin and married Mary are in the forest and they're once again worried about Fangorn when all of a sudden they hear a 
strange voice that says, "Don't do not be hasty." That is my motto. And we get the introduction of a large man-like tree uh, that that like goes hmm a lot. And um, he's it's Treebeard, and I love Treebeard. He's he's great. Um, he he can be a little tedious at times. Um, when he's telling big long stories uh, that take a really long time to tell, but that's kind of that's the point, who though. he is, right? That's, that's his character. Yeah, that's the point. I think that that's yeah. We're supposed to understand that, like, like with the language and and the the his his mentality. Obviously, he might be a little boring as a character sometimes, but <laughs> I think there's. I still love this character. I I think that he's really cool. And I also love the the, the kind of. Uh, stoner quality that's been built up around Treebeard and Ents and all of that. Mm. <laughs> that that's sort of like they that this is like a stere- like a stereotype for what someone who's a stoner could be. <laughs> we do get uh he hints about how he's actually extremely ancient and how he used to stride across lands that are now beneath the waves. He basically says he's the oldest living standing thing, right? I think that is said later by Gandalf when he's talking about oh. Treebeard, but I think in this time we don't know that. But I think yeah, Gandalf later says he might be the 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 oldest living being, which is interesting when you think about what Tom Bombadil. That's um, what I was gonna bring up. Yeah, yeah. Is he like, like Tom how, Bombadil? How does that work? Is he older than Bombadil? He could be. So this sort of led me to the comparison between Treebeard and Tom Bombadil, and it made me mm-hmm. think about how Tolkien loves this kind of character, and it's like this ancient knows way more than our characters. Um, semi like godlike character uh, um, they're like immortals right like he writes the immortal elves he writes the immortal gandalf he writes the immortal tom bombadil he writes the pretty much immortal tree beard he's older than all of them and it, this is something that's really hard to do and i think tolkien loves to do it and i think he does it well at least in a way that that appeals to us you know, simple mortals who don't get to live, you know, as long as these beings, um, I still believe it, right? I never feel like I don't believe that this is an ancient being. And so I think he's he's good at it and he loves to do it. And it's, it, it is um, fascinating to look at how these characters play roles in his in his books, right? And it's like the, it's like the past embodied in, in a character. And he keeps having these kind of characters crop up. The way he gets around the fact that these characters are all knowing and God beings basically is just that they're so eccentric. So like, you know, Treebeard isn't going to tell you everything, his whole story, everything you ever want to know, because he wants you to tell him stuff as well. Well, and also you'd probably die from old age and the amount of time yeah. it would take him to tell the first <laughs> part of it. <laughs> exactly. But like in, like somebody like Tom Bombadil clearly has like either, you know, I don't know what motivations his, he has, but, you know, he's has his own skin in the game and he's he's interested in what he's interested in and, and everything else is irrelevant. So... I think that that's how you get around those characters. But it does add to, because then you can get something like in the Silmarillion, you'll hear something about like, you know, there might be like a tree beard reference. Like somebody comes across tree beard or something crazy like that. And you're like, well, that makes sense because he's always been around. So why wouldn't yeah. he show up at some point? Which makes me think, will we see tree beard in the new Amazon uh, series? Maybe. Good. Maybe. He's old enough. Yeah, I guess we we should talk about that a little bit, just because we have news now that we last we talked about it on the podcast that we thought it was going to be young Aragorn because that's kind of the rumor that's that right. was going around, and now it's not going to be, which is honestly way more exciting to me. Yeah, I, I guess I I guess I am ambivalent about that. Like I was I was kind of intrigued about a young Aragorn story, but it wasn't like I was overly attached to that. So mm-hmm. I'm just interested to see where they go with it, and I hope that it's going to be good. 
<laughs> that's, Me too. that's where I'm at. <laughs> yeah. And I hope we see Treebeard. That's my other thing. <laughs> <laughs> we got to see Treebeard. He better be in every fucking episode. He better be the main character. I don't care if we just get one, one you know, cameo of Treebeard. I still just want to see him. Yeah, he's got a real short beard. He's got like a really like nice, like neat beard. So speaking of Treebeard, he says that he is on no side um, when they tell him about like what's what led them here, uh, Mary and Pippin. They also don't tell him about the ring. Um, they keep that secret. So I, I like that they're they're sort of sticking to the party line here. They know that the ring just is a super secret thing and they shouldn't tell anyone about it. So they don't even tell Treebeard. Mm-hmm. He seems to know that they're they're omitting something, but he's okay with it. And he says, I'm on no side, but I except for I am against the orcs. So even Treebeard hates hates the orcs uh, because mm-hmm. they are just always chopping down trees, I guess. Well, and that's like that goes. I know that Tolkien hates allegory, but like that's the whole allegory of like a military industrial complex and, mm-hmm. and what it does to something like the environment. And there's a very much like an environmental message, I think, to these books. Yeah, well, we talk about that a lot in our fellowship coverage, how uh, it was adopted by sort of the hippie movement in the 70s. And Tolkien was always sort of resistant to that because he didn't feel like he had written that kind of book um and so then it gets down into like we talked about the death of the author and like does it matter whether or not tolkien intended that or does it matter what the book on its own sort of seems to mean um and i don't know there's not one one clear answer to that but i think it is uh both are valid ways to look at it so Treebeard also talks about saruman and how he used to be more friendly but then he started taking up with orcs and cutting down more trees and now there is always smoke rising from Isengard. And uh, he says he's going to have to do something about it. And he asks them to come along. And uh, this is a difference to me that stood out immediately. I know we're, we're, we try not to talk about as many differences in these book episodes. But this tree bo- beard is already like, I got to do something about this. Come with me. I'm going to go try and com- convince the other ends about it. Right. Whereas it feels to me like they changed that completely in the, in the movie to Merry and Pippin are the ones convincing him to do things. Right. Which gives Mary and Pippin more agency in the story, I guess. So I guess I kind of like that change. Yeah, I, I was going to say that it's it's anytime you can give those characters more to do. I feel like it because otherwise it's like Mary and Pippin. I don't I, I, don't, I like the idea that Mary and Pippin are affecting change rather than just along for the ride. But I did want to ask you about this Entwives stuff when he starts talking about Entwives. Yeah, he talks about the Entwives. He can't, they can't find him anymore. They lost him. Oh, well. We'll find him again in some future age. I guess is the the mood. Yeah. Wait, what, what did you think it's, about that? I just I had for, this is another detail that I completely forgotten about. There's definitely some problematic things going on with like the idea of the end wives and the and the and that male ends. But uh, it's also interesting that like the way that they live their lives is so slow and so um, passive that like something like continuing the species at, by being around um and wives is isn't really important to them and they become separated and and seemingly the end of the ends is is on its way if if they don't eventually make more i don't know baby sprouts or something yeah this reminds me of like what like pandas and stuff like yeah they're just they're just like they're they're dying out because they're just like not that interested in reproducing (laughs) um he also takes them to his int house and in and I, this is, I, I couldn't quite picture this. Help me out with this. Like, what, is, what does an ant house look like? Is it just like a, a group of trees? Because there does seem to be some furniture in there, like a table and a, and a bed, even though they are said to sleep standing up. So I don't know why he has a bed if he doesn't lay in it. Right. Or he doesn't know. sleep in it. But he does, like, lay on it at one point, I think. 
It's very weird. He also, I think, looks different in the book than what we get in the movie. I think he's a little bit less like just a straight up tree, like is what we mm-hmm. kind of get in the movie. I think he looks a lot more humanoid, I guess I'm saying. To me, yeah, I, I don't know. That. From the description I read, it, it seemed to me like he looked more man-like than, than Treebeard in the movie does. Well, then I like the cha- that change as well. I, liked, I, I think that's such a cool idea to have him like basically be a tree that, that is a man. Instead of it being the other way, maybe a man who's similar to a tree or yeah. s- something like that. I agree. I think I think it's, it's a cool idea, and I could be misreading that. Other people might disagree, but that's just the in, in, you know what I got from it. Um, but yeah, man, can you describe an ant house to me? Do you, can you can you tell me what that looks like? Does it have walls? Idea. It's got to be massive, right? It's got to be huge if if a tree man is fitting in there. Does it have walls, or is it just a group of trees, or like I don't know, man. I, I was unclear. My ima- sure. yeah, my imagination of it is there's no walls. Like maybe just like a yeah, like a canopy type thing. Okay. Yeah, I don't and know. Clear like an oh, clearing. Uh, they they go to another int house later, but uh, let, let's let's continue on with uh with this chapter here. So they go to the int moot, which is the meeting of the ints, and they arrive, and there's a bunch of different kinds of ints there, and they're all as varied as the different types of trees. And there is a description of how like each one resembles a different tree. Like there's one that looks like a birch tree, and one that looks like a fir, and one that looks like an oak, and all this stuff. And I thought this is some really cool, like, inventive sh- shit on, on Tolkien's park that I think has really, like, carried over into fantasy in the, you know, since since then. And, and oh, also, there's a really cool thing that I had, ne- I had never really thought about. And then, like, when I heard it, it reminded me of, like, maybe I had heard this in the past. But the idea that trolls are, like, the twisted versions of ints, much like orcs are the twisted version of elves. Right. He kind of made that comparison that they were as powerful if not more powerful than trolls yeah he says like we're as powerful as trolls like you know of trolls we're as powerful as them except for they're like the abomination version of us <laughs> right. you know um but i just never i never thought about trolls and and ints having that sort of inner like that sort of relationship and interplay like common ancestor i guess yeah or, or i don't really know how it. yeah like dark magic made trolls out of ints as in the same way that dark magic made the orcs out of out of the elves, right? Right. I mean, see, seemingly, I, I don't really see the connection as much as I do with like orcs, but I guess I get that like the size and the strength. I don't know. I, I see more of a comparison to elves and, and orcs. You think of trolls and other fantasy period, you have to think of ents, even if there aren't ents in that story, you know, because that's kind of the basis potentially yeah, was, I don't know. you know was was Tolkien like the the originator of a troll is that true in all fantasy or just just Tolkien's fantasy I don't know at one point uh Pippin says that they they experienced a great longing to see the faces of their companions especially Frodo and Sam and Strider and I was like well fuck get me and Legolas then I guess like, right yeah. it was like weird that he like lists everybody except Gimli and Legolas. Like, I think it's because they they were the ones like the, the the original ones that like they they set off with were were Sam and and Frodo and and Strider or Aragorn. You know, from Bree basically. Yeah. No, I get it. I just it, I just thought it was funny cuz it was like I thought about more of the names he's omitting than the ones he was highlighting. <laughs> yeah. So Treebeard uh basically says like this is going to take a few days. You go off with this other and named Bregalad or Bergalad, and uh, he's a younger, more hasty int. And we learned that he has a backstory. This hasty int that he was from an area that all that like I guess got chopped down, and so his mm-hmm. like wood that he was from has been destroyed. Um, they go with Bergalad through the woods, and they go and they laugh and they sing as he's like walking him through the woods, and they have a good time. Eventually, they go to his int house, 
where he like gives them this liquid that is like sustains them. Um, mm-hmm. And he sings some songs about the trees that were lost and they continue to hear the, the, the int moot going on for three days. And then uh, one afternoon finally comes where there's silence. They rejoin them or no, they're, they're there when the ints come marching through the woods. There's 50 of them strong with Treebeard at the lead. And he says, they're going to Isengard. We're going to war. And he says it hasn't happened since the days of Sauron. Um, which is interesting because I didn't know that. So apparently they have they have marched in the past against Sauron. Uh, yeah, so this is the last march of the Ents, and uh, as they go, they're they're they continue to like pick up more and more of them. And so this is all very different than the movie too, right? Like first off, we don't get any Bergalad or whatever however you say his name. And uh, once again, Merry and Pippin are the instigators, and they 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 can't wait three days, and they're able to uh, get this thing to happen sooner. And mm-hmm. everything's just kind of sped up, right? This is another indication of things being sped up in the movie that are dragged out in the books, which we got a lot of that in uh, in Fellowship. Yeah. So chapter five is the White Rider. So Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas track the hobbits into Fangorn. They head in, and they immediately come across an old man in the wood and confront him. The old man doesn't seem to know them, and he also makes them freeze in sort of like a magical way. And then he tells them that the hobbits met someone they didn't expect and bids them to sit down. Clothed all in white, Saruman, Gimli thinks, is who this is. Um, But it isn't. It's Gandalf. (laughs) It takes a while to get revealed. Um, They have like a pretty good conversation with this hooded figure before they find out that it is Gandalf. But you kind of get the... You get the implication that Aragorn and Legolas are realizing who this is and maybe in yeah. some way like the Before laughing he at one point he laughs like Gandalf laughs and they're like scared by it but also kind of seems familiar maybe um yeah. but they all draw weapons on him at the nearing the very end and he like basically like all of them shudder and let their weapons go and realize it's him at the last second yeah he does say uh yes my name was Gandalf Indeed, but then he says, "Indeed, I am Saruman now, or at least as he sh- Saruman as he should have been." Um, so yeah, this is that what we were talking about earlier, where it's like they're trying to play with like the idea that maybe Gandalf is different now. He is sort of like who the 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 white wizard is supposed to be, and not mm-hmm. what Saruman is. And um, they fill him in on the death of Boromir and all the rest that's happened since. And then Gandalf tells them about how Merry and Pippin has the coming to the Fangorn has caused an avalanche to begin, which I guess is referring to the March of the Ents. And uh, we get talk about how Sauron can't imagine that they're trying to destroy the ring and how the two are at odds and that Sauron fears that Saruman might get the ring and use it against him. And he also knows that the nine are now on winged steeds called the Nazgul. And Legolas reveals that he actually shot one down in the past, um, but then I guess it's been replaced, and and so Legolas has already killed a Nazgul, apparently. <laughs> and, but and Gandalf was like, yeah, well, it didn't mean it didn't mean anything, so sorry. He's like, yeah, he was like, good job, but one. but it, yeah, it didn't it didn't kill the one of the nine. He says that it was not him who was who was at the campfire last time, so it must have been Saruman. And uh, yeah, I wrote down Gandalf seems to know everything. Like he just somehow is just like caught up on like everything that's going on all over the world. He knows Sauron and what he fears. He knows Saruman. I don't know. It's he knows a lot here. Yeah, he knows everything definitely. And it, to talk about the the idea that he's he's 
this different person. I think that if if he if Tolkien had leaned into that and made Gandalf clearly a different person for the rest of the book, how much like how much more impact would that have had? I think that would have been. I mean, granted, I love the story how it plays out, but how interesting would that be if he's always a kind of a different person now? You know, if yeah. like he he didn't feel joy the same way, or he didn't feel he wasn't as inve- invested in these specific people's lives. He was it was more like macro. He just wanted to save everyone from Sauron yeah. coming back. If I you think. see if you see more removed, I, I, and I think we, he is playing with that. I just I agree that it's like he doesn't really lean into that. It's more like kind of some of the subtext there i will be interested to to track gandalf in the books versus gandalf in the movie because maybe that is a bit of the of the of the movie's effect on it too that that we're getting yeah Uh, but yeah i'll be so he does reveal here about his fight with the balrog how he plunged into deep water then went to the bottom of the water the balrog became a thing of slime they fought beneath the world until they he followed the balrog from the the, like the deep places in the world back to casa doom where they fought upon the peak. And then he defeated the Balrog finally and was saved by Gwahir, the the Prince of Eagles. Gandalf is taken to Lothlorien by Gwahir, where he is healed and clothed in white. And uh, yeah, so this is is how Gandalf survived and was sort of reborn as Gandalf the White. And I think this is where we have to talk about the Christ allegory. Because we know that Tolkien was Catholic and that... Mm. He doesn't like allegory, yet you can't look at Gandalf being reborn in this way um, as being anything other than a Christ allegory to me. Like, it's it's pretty naked, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, dying and going to, to the, well, not necessarily dying, but like going to the deepest places and fighting for such a long period of time um, and then only to ascend to the highest peaks and, and then you know, return to the heroes and like a different, it just, it's there. And I yeah. think there's a lot of that as much as, and, and I think that that's been said a million times about the allegory that, that is in the stories, even though he says he doesn't like it. It just, it, th- there's some stuff there that he very clearly, you know, whether he realized it or not, I think that he was, he was adding a lot of uh, specific experiences and specific messages in his books. Yeah, I mean, and, and if you think about Gandalf sort of being dragged down by the Balrog, which could be symbolic for, like, the overreach of the dwarves and all of humanity, and, you know, by extension humanity, I guess, and then he defeats it and returns, um, it's sort of like Christ, like, dying for the sins, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, I don't know, it's definitely there, I agree. Um, and it's like, I, I'm not 100% on this, but tell me if you think that this is what... I. Th- think i remember when jesus dies he goes to hell right for a period of time and then comes back i don't know man that sounds like a comic book or something <laughs> like it might be true but i just it sounds like like he goes to hell and kicks ass and three days later he returned <laughs> i thought that yeah i thought that he had to suffer like i thought that that was part of it was that he like went to hell and suffered and dealt with all the things that that you would have had to and then and then was resurrected because of that or, i don't know man uh i don't think i've ever heard that so that seems to me like maybe hey dude that's my headcanon <laughs> something from from uh that sounds like it's something out of uh what was that uh dante's inferno or whatever or something like oh, one of those preacher. one of those shows <laughs> yeah dude that's my head can you read the bible sometimes you get your own head can <laughs> yeah, you go- <laughs> uh let me just say that i apologize to whoever we've just offended which is probably i don't know half of the people listening to this but <laughs> i hope not i don't mean it in offense so 
I mean, it could be cool. He maybe he comes back with like you know a necklace made out of the ears of all the demons he slayed while he was yeah. in hell. Well, he's got a flaming demon sword now. He's got like a crazy like. Oh, that uh, would be cool if Gandalf came back with like the Balrog's whip. That would be sweet. <laughs> you should pull it out at one point and strike the Witch King with it or something. Uh, anyway, let's continue. So, uh, he he passes on some messages to to Aragorn and Legolas. And then Gimli is all sad that like he didn't get a message. He's like, "Oh, the Lady of of Lorien didn't send me any message," and he's he's getting all depressed. And then, and then uh, Gandalf's like, "Oh, actually, uh, she he did she did send you one, and and hers wasn't as sad as the other ones that she sent. She just said like, uh, what is it, uh, Lockbearer, wherever thou goest, my thought goes with thee. But have a care to lay thy ass, uh, axe to the right tree." And I was like, "Okay, did Gandalf just make some shit up right here?" <laughs> yeah. I think so. You think he's lying? Because like I was like I was like, does Gandalf lie to them? Maybe, because this feels to me like Gandalf was like, oh man, I need to like give this guy something. He's all bummed out. I'll just tell him some some shit that she might have said. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> like, why I feel did like he forget definitely... to say that initially? That doesn't make any sense, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's why I think that he definitely made it up. You know, and it's for a friend's feelings. It's not like he was like I don't know. I don't a think white lie from Gandalf. A white. white lie. Maybe he's not as pure as he is. He saying he is. Well, it's a pure, pure lie. So (laughs) (laughs) Gimli is encouraged by this regardless. And uh, they head out and they hear they they just. Oh, uh, Gandalf also tells them like that they need to go to Theoden. Like that's the more important route for them. And that the the hobbits are now with Treebeard essentially. And they're going to be okay. So they go. They believe him. They go out uh, to go towards Theoden. And eventually they arrive at the gap of Rohan and they see that there is smoke rising from Isengard. And we get to chapter six called The King and the Golden Hall. So they've had a long ride. They arrive at the Vale. They find the Great Hall of Rohan, which is the dwelling of the King of the Mark of Rohan. Uh, They meet this pale figure named Wormtongue. And uh, Theoden seems to be bent and super old and uh really weak they are forced to leave their weapons outside before they came in but gandalf is allowed to keep his staff um i also there's a, like a cool thing where aragorn aragorn's like you're not gonna make me put down my sword this is you know what's the name of it Enduril or whatever Enduril, yeah yeah he's like you're not gonna leave and then finally he agrees he puts it down and he's like no one's gonna touch it it's gonna be right here when i get back it's not gonna have moved an inch <laughs> and the guy's like okay geez you know somebody uh, as soon as he left the room too somebody was like touch yeah, somebody, like, put a finger on a touch <laughs> yeah and i like how gimli's like well i guess my axe can go here if it's gonna be in such good company and he sets right. it down by the sword um that if was you all cool are a guard then. if you're a guard and a wizard shows up at your at your lord's place and he doesn't want weapons and you leave it you let him have his staff you're a moron. Like I don't know how all these. Well, but I mean, it's good though, because like maybe I don't know. Maybe that maybe that guard was onto some like you know worm tongue is is garbage and needs to be called yeah. out or something. I don't know, because no, maybe, uh, yeah. it ends up being like that's how I. Well, I don't know how much of his power is derived from his staff or not, but uh, Gandalf is able to he definitely use it. Yeah, we're getting to here. <laughs> Did you notice that both Worm Tongue and Theoden call him Gandalf Stormcrow? Yeah, I did notice that actually. Like, what what is that referring to, or is that just yeah, like calling know. him a like piece of shit or something? And just that's like a polite way of saying it. I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I really don't know what that is in reference to. But I went ahead and looked it up, and it's apparently it implies that Gandalf is both the harbinger of doom and a scavenger who benefits from the conflicts between neighbors. 
So he's he's calling him a piece of shit, yeah. <laughs> like like uh, Carrion Bird, who's who's coming in and capitalizing off of this. Yeah, so it's not referencing something specific, but it sounds like it is. He's like Gandalf Stormcrow. Um, right. Anyway, G- Gandalf raises his staff and tells Wormtongue, uh, you know, fuck off, blasts him, and uh, immediately Theoden like starts getting more strength. Also, we see this is the first time where uh, Eowyn and Aragorn meet, and we get that Aragorn immediately finds her fair, and they have, mm-hmm. like, a moment. <laughs> um, yeah, she, like, can't... Yeah, he realizes that she can't stop looking at him. They, yeah. like, can't... They keep catching each other's gaze. Yeah. Hey, man. Hot stuff. It's lonely out there, I guess. <laughs> um, so... Gandalf brings Theoden out into the light to see his land again, and when when he does, Theoden is able to stand tall, cast aside his stick, and look like just way younger than he than he had looked before. Uh, Theoden has no sword, but when he is given one by Eomir, Eomir, it seems like he's fu- he he, he kind of rises to his full power then when he when he holds the sword again. Um, Eomir, who had been cast out and and is now been brought back, right. And I think that was one of the biggest, that's one of the biggest things for them was because it was clearly just like the manipulation of Theoden had him removed and and he's like clearly an important person to the... the... Yeah, because Wormtongue has been insinuating himself into the situation and like getting Theoden to do things that are go in Saruman's favor, whereas Eomir was wanting to, you know, go against that and and actually fight the orcs and, and, you know, do the right thing. And Mm -hmm. he got cast out because of that and was sort of on a shit list. Uh, but we also learned that Aomir is actually like basically the closest living thing Theoden has to an heir at this point because his, his like sons have all died. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't is know. he the heir? Or just because I thought his his daughter. Well, he names be... them. He names him heir later. Before right. they go That's to Helm's I mean. Deep, he says at he that says point, Aomir is now my heir, my heir. But it wasn't up to that point, I would assume, right? Because he had to name him that. I don't know who the heir was because I I get a sense this is a very patriarchal society, so I don't know that Eowyn is necessarily in line here but with like who was i don't know it seems like they would have had to say that somebody was but i don't know so worm worm tongue is basically called out and theoden call, commands him to rise as he's like whining and sniveling and he says you're gonna come with us and you're gonna fight and you're gonna demonstrate your worth as we fight the orcs um worm tongue does not want to do this he seems terrified he he has an alternate plan of how about you name me steward while you're gone and i'll rule here in your stead uh, Theoden does not like that. <laughs> Gandalf calls out Wormtongue, says that Saruman is your true master, and he convinces Theoden instead of instead of killing him to give him a horse and see where he goes. Essentially, like does he come with us and fight, or does he go fleeing to his master? And uh, Wormtongue spits at the feet of Theoden, goes to get the horse, and, and fucks off. I guess to go. I'm see really surprised Saruman. that he. Yeah, I'm really first off the fact that they like let him get a horse and go away. I understand that they were trying to see where he was going to go, but they should at least like if and if I'm him also at the same time, I'm definitely going to act like I'm on their side and then dip out later. Right. Like you don't have to make this, this is not a very a Game of, of Thrones it. moment. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. He just gets to leave. It's, it seems weird. Um, I did like there was a detail right after this where a guard goes and takes his helm down to like a, a, a well, fills it up with water, comes back up to the steps where he spat and like washes it away i don't know i just right. thought that was cool like his respect well for that's the, the for the exactly. place right and that's the big thing is like it's very clearly the spitting was a huge moment and that's why he didn't leave 
uh, you know, under the cover of night or something after he acted like he was on their side is because it's all about, it's like about the statement of it. It's about spitting at the feet of him and showing him like, you know, he, he thinks he's on the right side is what I'm trying to say. I think Wormtongue thinks that he'll, he'll retreat back to, you know, Saruman and eventually, uh, he'll get what's coming to him. Theoden will and, get and, what's coming and to him. In defense of the way it goes down, I think it, it does highlight Theoden as being more honorable and forgiving and merciful and not evil, right? Like this he shows him at, being. Wasn't it Gandalf who tells him to to let him go? So it's yeah, kind but of he, just like he's he just doing what Gandalf does. Have to does. listen to Gandalf here. You know what I mean? Like yeah, he could say, like, true. "Fuck it, no, I'm going to kill him." Um, he yeah. listens to Gandalf. So yeah, like maybe Theoden through Gandalf, but it, it makes us like Theoden and not think of him as like some kind of like merciless killer. Right. Um, which maybe yeah. if he had just chopped off Wormtongue's head, like maybe he would have felt that way. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. So Gandalf lays out the whole the whole story of like how he thinks Wormtongue was being used uh, to to in, in the long game by Saruman to uh, weaken Theoden and weaken Rohan. Uh, so in return for being sort of lifted from this hold that Wormtongue has on him, Theoden gives Gandalf Shadowfax, which he then lasts because like Shadowfax runs up like he already is Gandalf's, but. Mm-hmm. that it's like i'm making it official you know he's yours he, he says you can have anything save my sword um and and gandalf named Shadowfax. uh he offered he offers uh the, anything that's in the armory to the rest and they all go down and like get some sweet new loot which made me <laughs> laugh because it may, reminds me of like D, which is right. obviously sprung out of lord of the rings but the idea of like magic items and, and just getting better armor and getting better gear and, and how there is Prepping like a certain joy to that <laughs> like, it's yeah. kind of fun definitely uh Gimli is already wearing a, like a short corset that was forged beneath the mountain and to the north, so he doesn't replace that. But he does get a helmet and a shield, all this stuff, you know. And he's, I like that he what he says about the it's emblazoned with a horse, and like he would rather be emblazoned with a horse than ride one. Oh yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And uh, we get Eowyn who's like smiling at Aragorn, and again they have like another moment, um, and that's all that there is. It's interesting because like it felt to me like there's not a lot done here to establish a budding romance it's just like looks and like a smile and like Aragorn noticing she's hot and that's it <laughs> i think that's <laughs> like, enough in this story though right i yeah. think in terms of what he was trying to convey clearly you know that these two characters are attracted to each other and that's all that he's trying to get across right now yeah so Thanon basically says they're going to go forth and uh to helm's deep right amir is going to be his heir and eowyn he's leaving behind to be uh, be the leader and so this is like kind of like a big moment because he's like who who shall lead while we're away and they end up naming eowyn which is suggested by one of his like, like one of his advisors i think um it seems like and he goes along with it it's not his idea though like i kind of wished it was theoden's idea i guess or maybe amir's idea i don't know somebody more important than just like a random counselor yeah, this is what um why i thought it was weird that i guess i guess naming an heir for safe if just for safety um, yeah, because he's I like, mean, we it might is an important moment, but he, but in case he dies, yeah, he names an heir. But it's also interesting that like he names Eowyn leader when he could have just potentially named her leader and heir. Yeah, but he doesn't. He names Amir yeah. heir. Right. Yeah, that's the patriarchy for you, man. <laughs> um, and then we end on the note of uh, everybody behold the white rider. That's like what we have going for us on our side is we have the white rider and they don't. And uh, the last host of Rohan rides forth, leaving Eowyn alone behind on the steps of uh, the Great Hall. And that's like the final image of this chapter. And it's interesting here because it's like 
we get we're getting the last march of the ents and we're getting the last host of rohan riding forth uh mm-hmm. so both of it, it's like two big armies i guess marshalling to war and uh we know that the next chapter is called helm's deep so i think uh some shit's gonna start going down and i'm excited i'm excited to get into that here at the end uh i felt like gandalf was like really full of himself like real full like yeah. i couldn't help but feel that way he's like i mean i get it because he's all knowing and all that but he's like telling at one point he's like you can have anything uh theoden's like you can have anything you want and gandalf is like i want your best that i want the horse that i've already trained and it's mine basically yeah uh to be officially mine and and i don't know a lot of that stuff happens there at the end of the like behold the white rider and i'm like all right guys we get it gandalf's awesome i mean he's jesus so yeah right (laughs) i mean clearly we all gotta uh, worship um i think is is the implication here yep i'm definitely googling that after as soon as we get off this recording i'm gonna google the does jesus go to hell Okay, we have, we're going to have to fill our, our uh, listeners in next week on what you find with regards to that. Does yeah. Jesus go to hell and do battle with demons? And <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if he does battle with demons, but... I don't think so, man. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> if I made this up, um, uh, it's blasphemy. But anyway. <laughs> well, I guess this is where we're going to leave it until next week. Um, that was a lot of fun, and, and uh, it's a lot of stage setting... But that's a lot of the way now. We're ready to get into some action, I hope. Right. Uh, so, yeah, come back next week when we're going to cover the next third of this novel. Yeah, I had a great time with all this setup, and, and I really enjoyed it. I think, like I said, I liked easing back into it. I'm so excited for next week. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm eager for the fights, but I'm also really eager to get back to, to um, Frodo and Sam, honestly. I'm really looking forward right. to that, which I know we'll yeah. get a little bit of that next week, too. So we really wanted to thank Grant J, who has been a patron of ours, like from, I don't know, not the beginning, but like for a long time. And he's he's been a big supporter of ours for a while, and, and we really appreciate his support. And uh, if you wanted to find out how to become a patron yourself and, and what sort of bonus content we're offering to our patrons, uh, go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film and you can see all of that. Yeah, thanks again, Grant. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at ink to film and join our Facebook group, The Council of Inklings. And leave us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, we officially, I think, up for this weekend, crossed 56 reviews, uh, ratings, rather. And uh, I read somewhere that if you get 200 ratings on iTunes, you can apply to become a critic on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. You can become like an official person who says whether or not a movie is rotten. Uh, which would be cool. I don't know, as a podcaster, that you can get that. So that's our new goal, is to get the 200, uh, 200 ratings, which is a, like, it's a lofty goal, I know, but like that'd be cool if we could ever hit that one day. So help us out. Leave us a rating and review on iTunes if you can. Thank you to Jennifer Delazana for providing our transcripts, and thank you to Music Archive for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, man. Until next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>